The sermon text today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Dan, for, for filling in in that very sacrificial role of reading uh, two verses for Ebby. I'm sure he's deeply indebted to you. Uh, here is the title from a recent article in the New York Times. A nation on hold wants to speak with a manager. The article goes on to say, in our anger-filled age, when people need to sh- shop or travel or to cope with mild disappointment, they're devolving into children. The article is about how today everyone is seemingly angry. And in the article, it goes on to list a a, a number of stories. Most would not be surprising to us. There's a story of a man from Traverse City of all places. I, I didn't ask if this was Pastor Dan. I hope not. But this man in Traverse City is very upset at the grocery store because the fish that was advertised being on sale was actually sold out. And so he throws a temper tantrum in Traverse City. There are stories of airline attendants that are berated over their politics. There are stories of people on airlines that have had their teeth punched out, women that refuse to move from the, the airline or the airplane aisle because they don't want to move for the drink cart. It's actually a story of a passenger that needed to be duct taped to his seat because he was so angry. The main story in this article concerned another Midwest man who was having a complete meltdown because the store was out of Cambozoza cheese. It's a type of high-end blue cheese. Now, of course, anger has always been an issue. This is not just a, a modern thing. The human heart has always been very prone to anger. But it does seem, coming off of the year 2020, that Americans in specific are just more angry. We are an angry people. Our politics is much more angry. That is the tone these days. Social media and its algorithms that force us into our own echo chambers of fear and disagreement are making us more angry. There's a well-known line in publishing that if it bleeds, it leads. You know, stories of bad news, of people bleeding that stir up fear and anger about how bad everything is. If it is a bleeding story, it is a leading story because bad news, angry news sells more newspapers than good news. If that's true for newspapers, it's certainly true for social media. And so now it's not just once a morning we get our newspapers, it bleeds, it leads, but social media, our phones, 24-7, it bleeds, it leads. As Americans, we are very prone to this idea that we snap our fingers and we get what we want. But but because of supply chain delays and corporations that are having a hard time finding employees, we actually have to wait for products. We can't just snap our fingers and the fast food shows up as quick as we would like. And so people are getting very angry. Going back to the story of the Midwest grocery store, the the worker, the grocery store worker is looking at this 60-year-old man who's having a complete meltdown because they are out of blue cheese. And this college student looking at this older man says, you get the sense that this isn't really about the cheese. That 
that employee's right. There's clearly something else going on. It's not ultimately about the cheese, or not ultimately about moving out of the way so the drink cart can come down the airplane aisle. There's something much deeper going on. So I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in a, f a few minutes. But we are talking about the subject of anger. We are, for five weeks, going back to Ephesians chapter 4. There's five specific areas of the Christian life that Paul says, when you put on Jesus, when you repent, when you believe, and you come to Christ, you put on the, the clean clothes of Jesus. The idea is that to become a Christian, you take off the old life and you put on Jesus. So I mentioned last week that when I was in college, I did landscaping, and I would come home and I just would stink really bad. My mom would say, John, you stink. You need to go put on clean clothes before you are allowed to come back to the family room. And in a sense, that is what happens when you come to Christ. It is all the work of Jesus. It is all grace. He covers you. But as He covers you, you are to live into these new clothes that He has given to us. And so last week, we mentioned, or Paul mentioned, that we are to take off what is false and we are to put on what is true. This week, it's the same idea as we look at the topic of anger, but it's a little bit of a different twist. The subject is anger, but we are not to take off anger as a categorical whole. It's not what Paul is saying here. He writes, in your anger, do not sin. Meaning, it is possible to be angry and not sin. The warning here, what we are to take off is the wrong kind of anger, the sinful kind of anger that does not honor the Lord and actually gives a foothold for the devil to be at work in our lives. But the topic of anger is not inherently sinful. You see, anger, one way to think of anger is that it is it's neutral, it's, it's amoral, it's, it's just a tool. And so our hearts, we can either use anger to glorify God, to enjoy God forever, or we can use anger on sinful ways to glorify ourselves and to go against God in His Word. And so that's what we, we are going to parse out today. What does it mean to use anger in good ways? Here's going to be our definition for anger this morning. Anger is the vexation of the soul concerning an injustice. So there is a, a, a moral way that the world ought to be run, and when it does not go according to plan, there is anger as a response. And so with that definition in mind, now we can begin to see why anger can be good or why it can be bad, because there are plenty of ways in the world in which the world is not run according to God's law, and therefore God is understandably and even righteously angry. There is a righteous anger that God has. You can go through all throughout the Bible, there'll be examples of God angry at the people or at the world. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 8, God has delivered the people from Egypt. Moses has climbed up on top of the mountain. He has received the Ten Commandments. He comes down. 
even though God's people have already graciously been set free, the very first thing they do is they burn their jewelry and they start worshiping a golden calf. And God's angry. There's an injustice there. When the Chaldeans enter into Jerusalem, God allows the Chaldeans victory because the people were sacrificing to other gods. This is Jeremiah 32, 29, Habakkuk 3, 12. You march through the earth in fury, you thresh the nations in anger. So there are plenty of examples in the Bible, in specific the Old Testament, of God being angry. And we, of course, know that this is a righteous anger, the right kind of anger. You see, the very beginning of the Bible begins with God creating a very good world. So in six days, God creates the heavens and the earth. He fills the earth with, with fish and birds and the sun and the moon and trees. Everything in the world is good, and all of it is to testify to the goodness and beauty of God. This whole world was created to acknowledge God. And then out of all that God created, the most special thing that He created was people, men, women, humanity, people like you and I, and people in a very specific way are to testify to God's glory. They are to work in such a way that's very clear that God is ruling this world and that people love God. And yet the story goes on in Genesis chapter 3 that sin enters into the world, sin wreaks havoc on everything. So this beautiful and good world now corrupted. So you have God, He's the fountainhead of all that's true and beautiful. God is the standard for moral purity. And therefore, when He looks on the world and sees the world just fallen into a sinful mess, God is rightfully angry. God is angry that the world is not run according to His glorious plan. The two main descriptions of sin in the Old Testament is idolatry and adultery. So the, the world has replaced God with lesser idols. And an idol is anything that you look to for purpose, value, and worth. And so it could be, you know, that you have a little religious statue, like a golden calf that you're rubbing and praying to for, for good luck in life. Or your idol might just be your bank account. But whatever you're looking for in life for purpose, value, and worth, that is your functional God. And that is an idol. So that's one description of sin in the Old Testament, the sin of idolatry. But there's also the sin of adultery, that God wants our heart. We are to love God. We are to enjoy God. And yet we have given our hearts to other people, to other gods, to other worldviews, to other systems. Like a man that is cheating on his wife, that is selling out for a cheap love of a mistress. So the world has lost the love of God and loves other lesser cheap gods. Idolatry and adultery. And God looks over the world and says, I'm the God who created this world. I'm the God that loves you. And you are not responding. Like any good husband or any good boss, he looks down, and with love, he is also angry at what he sees. God shows us what righteous anger ought to look like. In the Confessions of the Church, there's a line that we often repeat, 
is that we believe in one God, and this one God is simple, and He is without parts or passions. That, that, that can be a very complicated line. God is simple. God is without parts or passions. You think, God's simple. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If I go to a pastor's library, I see lots of very big, old, complicated books that are trying to explain God. So I'm, not, I'm a little confused on what you mean by God is simple. And I'm also confused, why do you say God is without passions? You know, we, we use passions in positive terms. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about my wife. I'm passionate about Michigan State, the school I went to for undergrad. I'm, you know, we, we think of passion as being a good thing in life. Why is God without passions? Here's what we mean by God is simple and without parts or passions. So this is going to take a little bit of thinking. But in theology, if you go back to Latin, passions is people are influenced by external means. There, there are forces outside of the person or the being that are doing the influencing. So, so we're passive in life. We do not have the ability within us to stay controlled. We are influenced by our environment. Therefore, we are passionate people. It is the world that is changing us, but not God. God's the one who's not passive, but He is active. He is changing the world. It's not the world that is changing Him. Now, He clearly interacts with the world, but He's so secure in Himself that He is not passively receiving the external forces of the world. God's the ruler. God's active. God is in charge. We also confess that God is simple. To be simple is the opposite of being compound. So when we think of God, classical deism, God is not a number of different attributes put together to make Him one. No, God is simple. He's not a little bit of holiness, a little bit of anger, and a little bit of love. Therefore, He has to decide in the moment which one He is going to be. No, God is the sum of all of those things at all times and always with perfect consistency. And that's really good news because people like us, we're, we're, we're compound. We're not simple. We're complex, meaning we don't know how to figure out every situation. So if you're, you're, your kids are being naughty and you need to discipline, are, are, are you severe? Are you gentle? Are you loving? Or do you discipline? I mean, it's very hard. We don't know how to think through those situations very well. But God is simple in that He is all those things at the same time with complete simplicity and consistency. It's a little bit of theology. Why is that good news? When we come to the topic of anger, we recoil because we always think of anger abused. Perhaps you think of your dad, just unhinged anger, just the kind of anger that tears people down, berating his wife, berating the kids. Just think of an, an unhinged uh, boss at work just tearing into his or her employees, or I'm a, a fan of college basketball. So when I think of anger, I think of Bobby Knight, the former coach at University of Indiana. Bobby Knight, just bad call, just temper tantrum, and he get, gets the chair, just throws it across the floor. And so we rightfully recoil at the thought of anger only because we have seen 
Anger that is not simple but complex. Anger that is not active but passive. All we have seen are abuses of anger. Unhinged, unchecked, very complex anger. But it is not so with God. You you, you see, Bobby Knight was actually very afraid in that moment. And so he's throwing the the chair across the court because he's afraid that his team's not going to win. If he doesn't win, then who is he as a coach? And if he does not have that identity, then who is he as a man? So Bob Knight is throwing that chair out of insecurity, but God is secure in himself. He's not trying to prove a point. God is secure. He is not insecure. God is leading with a steady hand. God's not threatened, but he's actually in control. God's not insecure, but he's actually secure. God is not impure, but pure. God's anger is just. It is controlled. It is pure. It is holy because God is simple. So God shows us the standard for righteous anger. We also look to Jesus. We're not surprised because Jesus is God in the flesh. We see that Jesus at times also gets righteously angry. Two notable examples in Matthew 21. Jesus enters into the temple. He sees that the temple is full of all these merchants that are selling doves and they are exchanging money. And Jesus goes in there, he's angry, and he begins to flip the tables over. Why is Jesus angry? It's not that Jesus is is anti-business. It's not that Jesus is against selling things. But the temple was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And he goes in there and he sees merchants that are selling doves. Doves were to be used for the offering, for the sacrifice. And so you have people that are trying to make money off of worship. And he looks over and he sees people that are exchanging money. This was a, a system that was used to oppress the poor, to take advantage of the poor. I'll exchange your money, but I'm going to charge you 50% interest. And so, in the temple, the house of prayer for the nations, in God's house, Jesus sees people that are taking advantage of the poor and are trying to make a quick buck off of worship. Love of God is being violated. Love of neighbors being violated. So Jesus gets angry and he begins to flip the tables. John chapter 11, it's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is a very good friend of Jesus who has died. Mary and Martha, who are the sisters of Lazarus, also very good friends of Jesus. They are crushed. Jesus shows up for the funeral. He sees all the people crying. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved when he saw these tears. The Greek word is actually much stronger. It's not just intensely moved, but it's, it's closer to he was indignant. That at the foothold of death, Jesus is indignant. He's angry. Why? Jesus knows why the world was created. He knows that God created the world for life and beauty and joy, and yet Jesus looks out And he sees what sin has done. He sees people crying. He sees people crushed. He sees his friend's body in a tomb. He sees sin wrecking havoc everywhere. And Jesus is upset because his father's world is being ruined. See, there is a righteous kind of anger. And it is that righteous anger that we are 
to put on. So that's the righteous anger of God is the righteous anger of Jesus. Now let's compare that to why do we typically get upset in life. Let's go back to the story of the 60-year-old man who is throwing a temper tantrum because the grocery store is out of cheese. The, the worker at the grocery store said, I don't think this man is really upset about the cheese. And he's right. So, so why do people get upset? It's not ultimately about just cheese and wine and crackers being delayed. There's something much deeper going on. You see, anger is vexation towards an injustice. So in that moment at the grocery store, this man perceived that there was an injustice. I deserve my cheese. My life, I got the credit card. You grocery store workers, you exist to serve me. I want my cheese, and I want you to get it for me, and therefore, if I do not get it, it is a grave injustice, and therefore, you are going to experience my wrath. Or I go to the restaurant, and I have my credit card, and if my steak comes out medium well and not medium, then you peons, you did not get it right. I'm God. I'm the one in control. You exist to serve me. You get it wrong. Therefore, you are going to feel my wrath. You see, here's the difference. Righteous anger keeps God at the center, but the kind of anger that leads to sin has you at the center. It has you at the center of the universe. See, that's the difference between righteous and sinful anger. Ultimately, whose honor are you more concerned about? It's not God's world. It's my world. I'm the king of my life, and therefore, whenever there is any sort of injustice against me, I am going to get angry. So you see, it's, it's not really about this man, this Midwest man, not having his cheese and crackers at nighttime. What was happening there is that there was a slight against his own identity in life. That grocery store that did not have blue cheese threaten the man's false belief that he is God. So if that's true, then we should not be surprised that as our culture gets farther and farther away from the Lord, as we begin to even say that there is no God, and there is no God that centers our lives and centers our country and centers our universe, that we are going to see more people that are getting flippantly angry over really dumb things. Because you need a steady and righteous God that actually defines what real injustice is. And if you lose that, then the great injustices, especially in a spoiled country like the United States, is going to be that you do not get your blue cheese. Look with me at, at verse 27. Paul writes that this kind of anger, this unrighteous anger, leads to sin, and that gives the devil an opportunity to be at work in your life. Why is that? Think with me about the very first sin, all the way back in the garden. You have Satan whispering into the ear of Eve, and then to Adam, and then the whisper was this, don't listen to God. Don't trust God. Listen to yourself. Don't listen to God's Word. Listen to your own words. Live for yourself and not for God. 
So that's why every time you practice unrighteous anger, you are actually listening to the devil in the exact same way because you are believing God's not the king, you are. It's not God's world, it's your world. It's not God's word, it's your word. It's your life, therefore you have the right to be upset. And that same lie that Satan gave, the devil gave to Adam and Eve, is the same lie that he is whispering into your ear. And therefore, you need to put it to death, lest the devil's whisper becomes louder and louder, and he has more of a foothold in your life. See, at the end of the day, the topic of anger really forces us to answer this question. Who is your God? Who is the highest aim of your life? Is it God? Is it His Word? Is it His world? Or is it you, your ways, and the false notion that it is your world? Are you angry when you are slighted or when God is slighted? See, that's the difference. When you put on the clothes of Christ, you begin to grow into Christ's clothing. If, if everything is operating in the means of grace and fellowship and community and prayer and going to church, if that's all working properly, as you grow into these new clothes that Jesus has given you, you are going to care more and more about God and His glory in this world and less and less about the very little kingdom of yourself. See, the good news of the gospel is that God is simple and without passions, that God is perfectly consistent. His love and His anger are actually working together in the exact same way. It's actually very good news. It's actually the center of the gospel. It is very good news that God gets angry. What a, what a terrible world it would be if just you could do whatever you want all the time and there's never going to be any punishment or judgment. It would be anarchy. There would be wickedness everywhere. It is actually good news that God does not just ignore the sin in our life. He wants to do something about it. So He sends us the Spirit to put it to death. God's angry at the sin in our life. And yet the good news of the gospel is not that He's so angry that He just lets us go, but in love working with His anger at the same time. In love, He gives us His Son. See, His anger doesn't cut us off. His love doesn't just overlook sin. At the cross, justice and love are satisfied. Justice is taken care of. God's anger is poured out on Jesus so fully and so finely that it is ultimately going to be taken care of. And at that very same cross, we see the demonstration of God's love that God loves us, that He's bringing us back, that Jesus as our substitute is the demonstration of His love. The gospel, yes, of course, includes God's love for us, but it also includes the very good news that God is angry at wickedness and He is going to bring an end to it. That's righteous good news. We need both in a simple way. Now, I recognize that for these five weeks we are looking at practical life issues. And so, I do want to end with just some practical thoughts. What does it mean to practically be anger? So, three 
quick takeaways concerning this topic of anger. Number one, understand every part of the world centers on God and not you. You need to repent of being the God of your own life. He's the king, not you. It is his word, it is his world over you. Number two, building off number one. Number two, see injustice then in light of God, and again, not you. See, not getting what you want because Amazon was delayed, that's not a true injustice. That's just you selfishly acting like you are Lord of the world. Those lights are not against God. They are against you. So you might need to repent. So third and finally, here's the overarching application. Be angry and do not sin. But, as Paul says, be angry. Be angry about the things that's like God. And so when your neighbor, who is created in God's image, a neighbor is belittled, be righteously angry about it. Be righteously angry when females are treated only as sex objects. Be angry when a minority is mocked or not given a fair chance based on the color of his or her skin. Be angry when a child is not given an opportunity to live because he or she lives in the womb and not outside of it. Be angry when society mocks how God has made men and women equal but different in design. Be angry when God's law is mocked. Be angry when you turn on Netflix and you hear the name of Christ used to curse and not to bless. Be angry when there are oppressive systems and masters that enslave people when there are wicked governments in industries. Be righteously angry when God does not receive the glory that is due to His name. Be righteously angry when there are people that cheapen worship and people turn away from God in unbelief. Be righteously angry and do not sin. See, here's where right-wingers can often get it wrong. We are to be angry, but it is the kind of anger that is controlled by a simple God that has no passions. You see, our God is very consistent in Himself with His anger. He is bound by all of Him together. There is not one part that is more or less. And so His anger, His holiness, His love, simply that is all working together. And so that it's not just of a ranting on the culture, ah, just everything is terrible, I'm just an angry person. No, it's, it's completed in all that God is. Be that kind of anger, righteous anger. And righteous anger is infinitely more valuable they're in a grown man throwing a temper tantrum because the little kingdom of himself is threatened. So put on the clothing of Christ. Put on Christ so that you might begin to value more and more what God loves and also what makes God righteously angry. Let's pray. Father, this is a... a an easy sermon to understand, a much harder one 
to live out. We, we've already confessed our, our sin of anger, and perhaps we need to do it again. We are prone to just flippant anger that belittles and mocks and tears people down. Oh, Lord, may that not be true of us. And when it is, we ask for forgiveness. And I also pray that you would help us not just to be angry right-wingers, but the kind of anger that is also working with your, your love and with your patience. You know that you're slow to anger, but you are also angered. And so, Father, we just need a lot of help to live this out, that in our anger we might not sin. Oh, Lord, help us to do this well. In Jesus' name, amen.